Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 87. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on September 6, 2022, in my closet in New Orleans, very early in the morning. I have to drive to Austin after this. On the off chance you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Once again, the Cuban creation cigar bar in Toulouse Street in the French Quarter provided essential support for the writing of most of this episode. So before we get to the history part, a couple of items. In August, the podcast exceeded 25,000 downloads and listens in a month for the first time. Joe Rogan isn't exactly looking over his shoulder, but I'm still totally blown away. In the 20 months or so since the first episode on January 1st, 2021, we've had more than 290,000 downloads and listens, more than 90% of which have been in the United States. The next four countries are Canada, the UK, Australia, none of which are surprising, and Japan, which is. Maybe they're homesick expats. The top 10 metro areas are closely aligned with population, but not perfectly so. They are in order New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, DFW, Atlanta, Austin, San Francisco, and Denver. Houston, punching way below weight. Wherever you live, thank you very, very much for spreading the word as you have obviously done. And a special thank you to... Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit.com, David Burge, known on Twitter as Iowa Hawk, Paloma Media's Nancy Rommelman, author Walter Kern, and Reason Magazine giants Nick Gillespie and Matt Welch, all of whom have said very nice things about the podcast on blogs and Twitter and such, along with many others of less celebrity with no less taste and wisdom. I'm fortunate in my friends, old and new. The second item is that I will actually be in Austin for most of September, at least by my standards. If you are within an easy drive of Austin and would like to do a meetup toward the end of September, send me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or a DM on Twitter or Facebook, and if there seems like enough interest, I'll pick a time and a place and put the word on the street, probably early evening during the week rather than fighting crowds on the weekend. I'm not too keen on assigning prerequisites, but your enjoyment of this episode will be enhanced by listening to the last one, at least, who was Opakankana. So I'm going to assume your knowledge of that one. It also wouldn't hurt to have listened to the other 13 episodes on Jamestown, but that's a big ask. So I'll refresh your memories as we go along, and frankly, I had to refresh my own as well. The first Anglo-Powhatan War, which was launched just after John Smith's departure from Jamestown in the fall of 1609, wound down and was settled in the months following the marriage of Pocahontas to John Rolfe at some point in 1614. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, the paramount chief Powhatan would recede from the historical record over the next few years. The last recorded encounter with him by an Englishman was in 1615, and he would die probably in 1618. During the eight years of notional peace between 1614 and 1622, 
The geopolitical environment between and among the tribes of the region and the English changed considerably. We've touched on most of this in one or another Jamestown episode, but it was useful for me to bring it all together, so maybe it will also be useful for you. In general, with lots of room to quibble, there were four trends that converged to make for war in 1622. In no particular order, they were first... Thanks to the innovations of John Rolfe and almost certainly also Pocahontas, the tobacco trade was booming. In 1615 and 1616, Virginia exported a bit more than 2,000 pounds of tobacco to England. Not much. By the late 1620s, it was exporting 500,000 pounds per year. This had several effects. The economics of tobacco were such that a farmer in Virginia could make many times the profit he would make at home in England growing food. This helped recruit settlers. It also boosted demand for labor tremendously, which increased the number of people in the colony under some form of servitude, including the 20 and odd Africans who arrived in 1619. Tobacco displaced staple crops, which meant that the English continued to depend on nearby Indians for food. This dependence would swing from trade somewhere between voluntary and coercive, which was at least sometimes nettlesome to the Indians, to violence in lean years, when the English would take food from the Indians by any means necessary. Finally, the dependence on tobacco was such that the English remained terrible hunters, to the extent that they wanted to eat game birds or deer. They needed the Indians to do the killing part. Eventually, it became expedient to give the Indian hunters firearms and the training to use them. Sort of the 17th century equivalent of powering your economy with Russian natural gas. Anyway, the downstream consequences of the tobacco boom got progressively worse as the English population grew during that period roughly tripling from about 350 English in 1616 to more than 900 in early 1620 to almost 1,300 by 1622. Second, the tobacco boom and changes in policy within the Virginia Company led to vastly more acreage under cultivation, supported by grants of land that had been taken from the Indians. The result was that the English spread out, which made them more vulnerable. In 1616, there had been five English settlements, but only three years later, there were 34 settlements and in independent plantations along the James, stretching from the Fall Line, roughly today's Richmond, to Kecaten at the mouth of the river on the Chesapeake. For those of you keeping track at home, that's a distance of over 70 miles as the robust crow flies, and quite a bit more if measured by the banks of the river. On average, it probably came to no more than eight or ten English people on each bank per mile of river, which meant they were pretty thin on the ground. And of course, grabbing all that territory, much of which had been, unlike Jamestown itself, prime Indian agricultural land, added to the resentment of the locals considerably. Third, the conversion of Pocahontas and her visit to London in 1616 had excited the interest of evangelical Anglicans in the conversion of the Indians to Protestantism. The Virginia Company had teamed up with clerics throughout England to raise money for conversion, 
including the construction of a Christian school for Indian youth. This led to continued pressure on the English in Virginia to show progress. The settlers in turn increased their efforts to take Indian children away from their parents so they might study the English religion. The Indians were very reasonably offended on behalf of their own religious beliefs, and they were in any case entirely unwilling to give up their children to an English boarding school. The Powhatan leadership, however, saw an opportunity in the English religious zeal, of which more below. Fourth, the influence of the paramount chief Powhatan seems to have declined after the peace, fundamentally a defeat, of 1614. The last Englishman recorded to have seen him alive would be Ralph Hamer in 1615. Powhatan, again, would probably die in 1618. As Powhatan weakened, whether physically or politically, his war chief and brother-slash-close relative Opakankana would become the most powerful and important Indian leader in the region. In the 16-teens, Opakankana was, as anybody who listened to the last episode knows, more comprehensively knowledgeable about the threat of Europeans than any Indian leader north of the Rio Grande. Assuming for the moment that he was the same man as Paquaquinio Don Luis, he had probably traveled more of the Western world than any leader of either side than in Virginia. He absolutely would have been familiar with the effects of European settlement on indigenous peoples, given his years in Mexico, Cuba, and Spain. And even if he had only spent long hours in conversation with Don Luis which almost certainly would have happened if they weren't the same person. Opakankana would give every indication of having learned well. The evidence is overwhelming that Opakankana had concluded that conventional war against the English would fail. The disjointed attacks in the first Anglo-Powhatan War had failed to dislodge them, and now their numbers were growing with each passing year. The only chance to eject the English from Senecomaca, the Indian word for the region now being overrun by the English, was subversion and ambush, and that required playing a very long game. Don Luis had played exactly such a game, seducing the Spanish into trusting him, learning their politics, and waiting for an opportunity to strike a blow that would protect his people. Opacancana would do the same thing, only on a massive and institutional scale, and his first step would be to become the greatest friend of the English in Virginia. Opakankana became friendly with Sir Thomas Dale, whom long-standing and attentive listeners will remember had become deputy governor of Virginia during the First Powhatan War. Dale was tough. He'd imposed martial law and whipped, sometimes literally, the undisciplined colonists into working hard and fighting effectively. When Dale and Samuel Argyll left for London in the spring of 1616 on the trip that would bring Pocahontas and her husband to England, it was Opakankana who arranged for them to bring his trusted counselor and priest, Udamadamakan, whose mission was, essentially, to gather intelligence under the guise of diplomacy. In Dale's absence, the new deputy governor was Captain George Yardley, and Opakankana worked to gain his trust as well. The Chickahominy tribe had made a separate peace in 1614, and it kept itself aloof from Opakankana's group going its own way. 
At some point in 1616, a year of drought and privation in the northern hemisphere generally, Yardley demanded that the Chickahominies deliver the annual tribute of corn required under their separate peace treaty with the English. The Chickahominies refused, in English accounts, contemptuously. So Yardley rounded up a hundred of his best fighting men and sailed into their territory to take it. In one account of the event, the English marched in and were met by warriors and leaders who refused to let them have corn. Yardley ordered his soldiers to open fire, killing a dozen or more men and capturing another dozen, whom he held hostage against a guarantee that the Chickahominies would deliver the corn that he demanded. Believing that he had a deal, Yardley headed back to his ships to sail to Jamestown. Along the way, he met Opakankana, who was, for some reason, in one of the intervening villages. Opakankana told Yardley that only he could broker a lasting peace with the Chickahominies, which he did. The great chief had thereby appeared to help the English and gathered the powerful Chickahominies into his grand alliance. There is another account of Yardley's incursion written by a critic of the Virginia Company named John Bargrave. In Bargrave's version, Opakankana had actually catalyzed the confrontation in the first place by reporting that the Chickahominies had killed the cattle and hogs of some English settlers nearby. Either way, the result was the same. Both the English and the Chickahominies thought Opakankana was on their side. In the summer of 1617, Samuel Argyll replaced Yardley, and Opakankana readily accepted his invitation to visit Jamestown, something that Powhatan had never done. Argyll had brought Opakankana's man, Udamakamakan, I have a hard time saying that fast, back with him and complained that the priest, quote, rails against England, English people, and particularly Thomas Dale. Opakankana claimed he had dismissed Udamakamakan's account, and he was now in disgrace. Argyll, whom we have seen, was a smart and crafty fellow. Remember how he snookered the French captain on the coast of Maine? Apparently swallowed up a Cancana's story hook, line, and sinker, just as the Spanish had repeatedly been persuaded into believing fairly unlikely things from Don Luis. There were other incidents that allowed up a Cancana to pretend to being the critical peacemaker. For example, a group of Pamunkeys killed five Englishmen trading with the Chickahominies and murdered a couple of children in a second incident. Opakankana rushed to tell Argyll that the peace should never be broken by him, and he gave Argyll the Chickahominy town where the men had been killed. He further promised to discover the miscreants and send Argyll their heads, a gesture both cultures would have viewed as perfectly reasonable then. But, not surprisingly, he never got around actually to doing either of those things. The Chickahominies continued to live in their town. Facts on the ground are tough to dislodge. The years between 1617 and 1622 were very tough on English and Indian alike. Almost 4,000 new settlers arrived in that time, and yet the population was less than 1,300. Fewer than 1,000 more than there had been in 1616. All the rest had died, and this in a time of peace. English Virginia's death rate had remained in the area of 80% ever since 1607. It's amazing anyone went there. Now let's go to James Horn's account, quote, 
Besides bringing passengers, ships brought European diseases. Argo reported a great mortality that swept through the settlers in the summer of 1617, but impacted the Indians far more severely. During the same months, a murin, that would be an archaic term for an infectious disease afflicting animals, seriously reduced deer populations. And a year later, a great drought afflicted the area, putting further pressure on food supplies and causing some peoples to be so depleted of food they were unable to pay their corn and tribute or debts to the English. During the torrid summer of 1619, another great sickness and mortality ravaged colonists and Indian peoples. Which European pathogens triggered the epidemics is unclear but the most likely candidates were dysentery, typhoid, smallpox, and measles. Back to me. All of this increased the pressure on both the English and the Indians in the years leading to 1622. The English enforced their demands for food tribute on tribes that themselves needed the food, there being a shortage rather than a surplus. Not surprisingly, it became ever more difficult for Opa Kankana to play his role as peacemaker and maintain the allegiance of the increasingly enraged Indians. Opa Kankana became more aloof to the English, probably to protect his domestic political power, which only made the English more eager to maintain the chief's friendship. This was especially so because of the rising pressure from England to build a college for Indian boys in the region and thereby convert them to Christianity. As mentioned, the Indians were loath to surrender their children to go to an English school and learn English ways. Yardley wrote to Sir Edward Sands, at this point the most influential director of the Virginia Company, that he should temper English expectations for conversions. That said, he also reported that Opakankana had agreed to a compromise, whereby, quoting Horn, settlers would build houses and set aside grounds for planting corn in their settlements so that Indian families identified by the great chief could live among the English. Settlers would be able to teach the children Christian doctrine without having to take them from their parents. And with incentives, such as clothes, cattle, and such other necessaries, parents and children might prefer to stay with them. This approach received the enthusiastic backing of an influential colonist, George Thorpe, who arrived in the colony in the spring of 1620 and was soon put in charge of the Indian College Project. Formerly a member of parliament and gentleman of the king's privy chamber, he was a major investor in the company and well-known to Sands. Deeply religious, Thorpe was dedicated to the work of converting the Powhatans and believed the lack of progress was mainly the fault of the English. We are, quote, not so charitable to them as Christians ought to be, he wrote to Sands a year later. Back to me. Opakankana, if he were Don Luis or only had spent long hours in conversations with him, well understood the intense interest of Europeans in the conversion of Indians. That interest was easily converted into leverage. The insertion of Indian families into English settlements vastly improved his intelligence network and would provide camouflage of sorts for the infiltration of other Indians with no interest in English religion. And so it was that Opakankana insisted that his people endure one insult or provocation after another, and remain, for all outward appearances, receptive to the possibility of conversion to Christ. 
Uh, but Can Can I even told Thorpe at some point in early 1621 that, quote, he acknowledged that theirs was not the right way, desiring to be instructed in ours and confessed that God loved us better than him. Opakankana was every bit the equal of Don Luis in telling European men exactly what they hoped to hear. In the same meeting, Opakankana told Thorpe something else, that he and his brother, still the notional top chief, had taken new names. Opakankana was now known as Mango Pisaman. Had the English known enough about the culture of the Powhatans, they would have known that chiefs took on new names to signal their leadership of a great military operation still to come. And telling Thorpe of his new name, Opakankana must have been confident that the English would not understand its significance even after 14 years in close quarters with the Powhatans. Opakankana was, in fact, ready to spring his trap in 1621, and he very nearly blew it. Now to David Price in his book Love and Hate in Jamestown, quote, Opakankana revealed his intentions to the chief of the Akamaks, a tribe of the Powhatan Empire residing on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake. Opakankana would need the Akamaks' help with a key element of his plan— during the era of Sir Thomas Dale's retaliatory raids a decade earlier, Chief Powhatan had experimented with deploying a non-lethal drug against the English. It was a hallucinogen of unknown origin. On two occasions, a small party of Englishmen was somehow exposed to it, and the men began fighting one another in a delirium. In both instances, however, the men's senses were so addled that they never inflicted any harm on each other, and they recovered their faculties before any injury could be done. After the second failure, the Powhatans abandoned their trial of drug warfare. Opakankana, not yet holding the reins of power, must have regarded the whole episode as another of his brother's frustrating half-measures. Now in command... Opakankana was ready to move past drugs of the non-lethal variety. Thus, Opakankana requested from the Akamak chief, a man named Esme Sechens, a supply of a deadly poison from a plant that grew in Akamak territory. The plant was most likely Cucuta maculata, which occurs naturally in the eastern shore. It's also known as water hemlock. Although the Akamaks were subjects of the Powhatans, they, like the Patawomeks, were distant enough that they could exercise their own will as a matter of practice. The chief steadfastly refused, and in turn gave the English the most valuable gift he could have given them, a warning of Opakankana's intentions. Back to me, long-standing and extremely attentive listeners will remember an anecdote from our episode... Jamestown and the Powhatans Part 8, The Emissaries, which dropped more than five months ago. Years before, the English translator Thomas Savage had gone to live on the eastern shore under the protection of the Indians there after Obakankana put a hit out on him. According to Christopher Clausen, whose paper was the basis of that episode, Savage got wind of the poison plot and himself warned Governor Yardley. Whether Savage's warning was an addition to the Akamak chiefs or at his behest is unclear, at least to me. Either way, the English were rattled. Opakankana, quote, 
earnestly denied any involvement in a plot. And when Yardley could not find any corroborating evidence, relations between the English and the Indians again relaxed. George Thorpe, the investor-turned-missionary, played an important part in diffusing tensions. Through the spring and summer of 1621, he'd been working closely with Opakankana, trying to get him to convert, just as Opakankana had hoped he would. Thorpe even had an English house built for the chief, who was said to love playing with a lock on the door. By the end of the year, the English were again blinded to the risk all around them. Opakankana had diffused the crisis brilliantly. This had come at no small cost. When settlers killed one of his great warriors, Namatnu, out of the belief that he had killed an English trader, Opakankana reassured Yardley that he would not retaliate and that, quote, the sky should sooner fall than peace be broken. The sky fell on March 22, 1622. Helen Roundtree, professor emeritus of anthropology at Old Dominion University, wrote a great book in 2005 called Pocahontas, Powhatan, Opakankana, Three Indian Lives Changed by Jamestown. She tells the familiar story that we've been covering on this podcast from the point of view of the key Indian players and explains why Opakankana probably picked late March to attack, quote, The great assault was carried out on all the squatter settlements with great precision on March 22, 1622. Why the choice of a day in March? The worst of winter would be over to make traveling a bit less rigorous. The summer, with its heat and foreign epidemics, would not yet have begun. A more cogent reason was that the season the Indians called Catapult was a time when the enemy could not retaliate against the warrior's loved ones. Powhatan families dispersed out of the towns in the early spring to take advantage of fish runs and to forage for other wild foods. They made visits back to plant crops and at intervals to weed them, but that was all. The assault was probably originally planned for Taquatoc, the late fall of 1621, for the same reason of dispersal. What safer time for the women and children to attempt a general attack? escape angry survivors with ease. Now to price for the fighting part, quote, For the colonists, Friday, March 22nd, 1622, started as a day like any other. Morning found native men visiting the plantations in their usual manner, bringing deer, turkeys, fish, and fur to trade in return for beads, glass, and metal. Some of the men joined the English at their tables for breakfast. Others mingled among the English in their workplaces, in the fields, at their brick-firing kilns in their forges, at their building sites and workbenches. The visitors carried no weapons. A colonist named Richard Pace landed at Jamestown that morning in a state of anguish, demanding to see the governor. He had rowed from his plantation three miles across the river, where a native working as a servant had broken ranks and told him what was going to happen. On account of Pace's warning, Jamestown itself was prepared for March 22nd, militarily at least. Governor Wyatt was able to get warnings out by boat to a number of other communities, but the English plantations were too widely scattered for word to reach all of them in time. Some 16 plantations and numerous smaller settlements were left totally exposed. 
back to me. Apart from a few warnings, many of which were simply not believed, Opakankana achieved almost total surprise everywhere other than Jamestown. The coordination in a world without watches or cell phones appears to have been remarkable. The day began with colonists and Indians all unarmed, all living and working together as they had been for several years. Then seemingly at an instant, the Indians attacked up and down the James River. They killed men, women, and children with, quote, the colonists' own swords and work tools, axes, knives, saws, and hammers. And then in many cases, they mutilated the bodies, taking special care with George Thorpe, who in his Christian faith had not believed warnings that the Indians would do this. The Pamunkeys who attacked his plantation had despised Thorpe for wanting to take their children for his boarding school and wanted to send the signal that nobody should attempt that ever again. Now let's go to James Horn's account. Quote, the attacks were devastating. Upriver at Henrico and lands beyond the Powhatans and Arahatics, supported by the Pamunkeys, swept through English settlements. Farthest to the west at Falling Creek, nearly the entire population was wiped out. 22 men, two women, and three children, including Captain John Berkeley, leader of a large-scale iron works and member of the governor's council. Only two children who hid from the warriors saved themselves. The ironworks, including a blast furnace, refinery forge, and other integrated workshops in which the company had invested thousands of pounds, was totally destroyed. Warriors broke down buildings and threw equipment into the creek. At the Indian College Lands, another highly significant company project on the other side of the river, most of the tenant workers and indentured servants were killed. At the same time, hundreds of Pamunkeys, Appomattox, Wayanucks, Chickahominies, and Queokahonics attacked 19 settlements from the Appomattox River to the lands of the Chickahominies, killing 142 settlers. English casualties were heaviest in densely populated areas such as Bermuda Hundred and Charles City, where prime Indian lands had been taken by Dale and his men toward the end of the First War. At some plantations, Edward Waterhouse detailed entire families being wiped out, such as William Farrar's house, where Enrique Patterson, his wife Alice, and her son William were slain, along with two maidservants, Mary and Elizabeth, and five men. At an adjoining plantation, Henry Millward, his wife, child, and sister were killed, as well as two men who were brothers, a boy, and, quote, good wife, redhead, perhaps all inside or about the dwelling house when the warriors arrived and killed them within minutes of one another. Back to me, and so it went all along the river. At Jamestown, where there apparently weren't Indians living among the settlers within the palisade, Opakankana had prepared a coordinated attack by land and water, hoping to infiltrate the town by stealth and put it to the torch. Pace's warning, however, had allowed the town to establish its defenses, and the Indians, under strict orders to avoid a frontal assault, withdrew to go after softer targets. Only seven miles down the river, at the plantation known as Martin's Hundred, the Indians scored their greatest victory, at least as measured by body count. Seventy-seven people were killed, including fourteen women and six children. Nine family groups perished entirely, 
and the Indians captured 20 settlers, mostly women. Save two houses, the attackers burned down every building. The attack on Ensign James Harrison's plantation illustrates Indian tactics. There, Nansamans and Weras Koyaks arrived at the main house carrying gifts. They asked if Captain Ralph Hamer would go with them into the woods to meet their, quote, king, who was supposedly hunting nearby. Thomas Hamer, Ralph's brother, in charge at the time, was in the house writing a letter and did not respond right away. At the appointed moment, the Indians set fire to the tobacco barn and called the English to come and help put out the fire. As the Englishmen rushed with buckets to save the precious crop, the Indians shot them full of arrows. Thomas, shot in the back with an arrow, escaped to a neighbor's house half a mile away, helped in its defense, and then eventually fled to Jamestown. All in all, Opakankanaw's men killed at least 347 non-Indians, perhaps as many as 400. Not all of the dead were English. Among the enumerated casualties were Irish, a Frenchman, and numerous unnamed servants, at least some of whom must have been among the more than 30 Africans known to be working in the Chesapeake at the time. And not all of the dead were adults. The Indians killed numerous children, including at least one sucking child, meaning a baby being nursed by his mom. I mention this not to be critical of the Indians. They were fighting a patriotic war against, from their perspective, invading peoples. And at various times since 1607, the English had done the same to them. War was and remains brutal beyond all imagination of those who have never waged it. But I do mention it because there is a tone among historians that, as settler colonialists, the English had it coming. One can find long academic papers about how inappropriate it is to describe the day as a, quote, massacre, because the Indians were defending themselves against invaders, and massacre is such a loaded word. Well, the children and any servants who were there by anything other than their own uncoerced choice didn't have it coming any more than the Indians did when the English had killed them because they wouldn't sell their maize, for example. March 22, 1622, in Virginia, was precisely a day of massacre, although a well-justified one from the perspective of the Powhatan Confederacy. There were such things as righteous massacres at least 400 years ago, and this was manifestly one of them, certainly from the perspective of the Native Americans. The Second Anglo-Powhatan War would continue for 10 years, and we will return to it. The aim of Opakankana's war, his victory condition, if you will, was to drive the English from his territory by inflicting such a severe blow that they would, in effect, throw in the towel. Spoiler alert, he failed. But he almost succeeded. In some future episodes soon, maybe even the next one, I still need to consult my muse, We'll see how the war progressed over the next few years and what it meant for the future of English settlement in Virginia. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. You know what to do. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app. Write us a nice review. Tell all your worthiest friends. Follow on Twitter or Facebook and send me emails. Until next time. <laughs>